Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. We believe that God has perfectly revealed Himself through Scripture alone, and that salvation comes by grace alone, from faith alone in Christ alone, and that everything is for the glory of God alone. So as we study God's unchanging, inerrant Word together, ask God to open your eyes, to open your eyes to see yourself and your own sin clearly. Open your eyes to see Jesus clearly, and pray that God would give you the grace to repent, to turn from your sin, and the faith to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you'd like more information, go to our website at edenworshipcenter.co. Good morning and Merry Christmas. Or as they say in Spanish, Feliz Navidad, which means Happy Nativity. Happy Nativity. Uh, So we're starting at Philippians 1. 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that In the day of Christ, I might be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Dearest Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you saw fit to give us your word that we can, in this day and age in America, keep it and carry it with us. Lord, help us not to take your word lightly, but to commit it to heart. 
Thank you that you have a message to speak to each one of us today. We ask that you would open up our minds and our hearts that we can hear what it is you have to say to us this morning. We pray your blessing over the person who is to speak today, that you would speak through them, that you would speak powerfully through them this morning. Amen. You can be seated. What a blessing to be together on this Christmas morning. So glad that you chose not to stay home. And I realize there are some of you that out of necessity you needed to stay home. But uh, we're so glad that we can gather together. What a privilege to, for me to be able to uh, bring the word on this Christmas Sunday morning. Those of you who are regular attenders here at Eden know that the last Sunday of the month we do something on the theme, Follow Me. And uh, what a privilege to be able to look into this passage of Scripture. You know, celebrating Christmas, the birth of the Savior, is the perfect time for us as Christians to be reminded that we are to follow the example of Jesus Christ. He's much more than a baby in a manger. You and I know the rest of the story. It may be Christmas, but Easter is coming. Because Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who came to pay the price of sin to purchase our salvation. He is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Beyond the manger stands the cross. Beyond the cross stands the empty tomb. And without the cross where the penalty for sin was paid, the manger is meaningless. Without the empty tomb, there is no hope of salvation. We rejoice today because we know the whole story. This passage in Philippians really serves as one of the high, high points in all of the New Testament because it gives us perhaps the clearest picture of Jesus Christ, of who he is, and not just what he has done. So we look into this passage I was thinking this morning. It really fits into three sections. Paul begins with call to unity and the importance of unity in the face of opposition and persecution. There's the example of Jesus and how he emptied himself, how he walked and lived in humility, and the call for us to do the same. And then, in the concluding verses that Chuck read for us, how do we live that out? When I was a kid growing up in the Mennonite church, I was constantly hearing it preached, live for God, live for God, but they never told me how. Now, maybe they tried, but you know, teenagers, we have thick heads, and it doesn't all penetrate. So uh, I'm believing they, they tried to tell me how, but somehow I never got it. But I love what Paul lays out in this passage of Scripture because it is simple and yet it is profound. Look with me in these next few moments as we walk through these verses. Beginning in verse 27 through verse 4 in chapter 2, we see this glorious call to unity. 
The believers in Philippi, as residents of a Roman colony, understood both the privileges and the obligations of citizenship. Philippi, as a Roman colony, was to be a miniature of Rome. And so Paul is making that application to the Philippians and their church, and I believe he's making it that application to us today, that we are to be a miniature of heaven here on earth. The Philippian believers were to demonstrate that they were citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And so there's a threefold admonition that comes to stand firm. And I think it's interesting where in verse 27 in the New American Standard, It says, only conduct yourself, which is an interesting thing because Paul uses a political term that would have been understood politically in the political context in that day. We just read our English Bible and we just read only conduct yourself, but they understood it much more. They're Roman citizens living in a Roman colony. So when Paul says in chapter 3 and verse 20 that our citizenship is in heaven, that carries profound meaning to them, much more than I think it does for us. We say that we're American citizens, but I sometimes question how much we really understand the significance of what that means. So our citizenship is in heaven, and we're called to be, Paul says, of one spirit, one mind, striving together. One spirit, hearts and motives that are united for kingdom purposes. One mind, one goal, one purpose. We are in unity together, striving together, not fighting with each other, but united in our efforts. I love the passage of Scripture where we read of Jesus healing the lame man. And I have to restrain myself this morning because there's so much in that. Because I believe that these four men who lowered their paralyzed friend in front of Jesus literally tore apart the roof of Simon Peter. That's a whole interesting thing, given Peter's temperament. But can you imagine these four men carrying their friends to Jesus if each one had a different idea of how to do it? So often in in North American churches, that's the way it is. We're pulling against each other rather than moving together. Well, that's a subject and a sermon for another day. It's interesting that in the whole book of Philippians, the word sin is never found. It is the book of joy. The Philippians were the most beloved of Paul's converts, the most loyal, but they weren't perfect. There were clearly some signs of disunity, some tensions that were building, and Paul wants to address those quickly before they become a problem. And what he's saying in these these section of verses at the end of chapter 1 is the strength and unity, consistency and conduct, united front in the face of opposition. We are striving and standing together. We're not divided. I remember a man by the name of Nelson Littweiler, a bishop from Canada. When Nelson Littweiler would call 
I was never quite sure whether he was calling to encourage me or get on my case. Generally, it was both. And I remember him talking about the early days in Ontario. There was no real division between the Protestants and the Roman Catholics. In fact, when his father, who was an Amish Mennonite bishop, died, the funeral procession went right by the Roman Catholic Church. And the priest stood and tolled the bell as over 200 slaves and cutters went by. I I read the report in the Kitchener paper. He tolled the bell for this Amish bishop in part because what the community didn't know is that the Amish bishop had purchased the bell for the Roman Catholic Church. And I remember Nelson saying to me and talking about those days, he said, we needed each other. Division was a luxury we could not afford. And I would say to us in the church today across the United States, division is a luxury we can no longer afford. And it's not a question of I'm okay, you're okay. I'll throw out of your theology what I don't like. You throw out of mine what you don't like, and we'll get along. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying as we look at the the environment that we're living in today, we are faced with similar hostilities to what the church in Philippi and the early church faced. And for time's sake, I cannot get into the whole... uh, I just can't go down that rabbit trail, even though that would be great fun to do. The fellowship of suffering for the cause of Christ is a unifying force. Because as Christians across the United States, the church is under attack. That would have been a good time for somebody to say amen. Paul says in verse 28, that in this unity, in no way alarmed, courage in the face of hostility really does two things, Paul says. Number one, it's a sign to our opponents of their ultimate defeat. I remember when they built Menohoff in Shipshuana, and they were trying to raise money. I confess to you, I thought, oh no, a Mennonite shrine. Now we encourage people to go and visit there. In fact, when you go into the one area, they have what is called hanging on the wall, and they don't always point it out, but it's called a Mennonite catcher. Many of us here today who come from an Amish or Mennonite background have an Anabaptist heritage. Many of the Anabaptist forefathers were martyred for their faith, drowned, burned at the stake. There was a secular reporter who was assigned to cover those executions, and he began to refer to these people as the people with the shining eyes because they went to their death with shining eyes rejoicing. The executioners realized rather quickly that they had to do something because here were these people on their way to the execution and they were witnessing to the grace and the faithfulness of God. So they devised ways either to cause their tongues to swell by putting a a hot iron on it so it would swell and they couldn't talk or cutting their tongue off so they couldn't talk. 
And yet this, this writer, this secular reporter, calls them the people of the shining eyes. Can you begin to understand, brothers and sisters, when God's Spirit so wells up within us and causes us to walk in faith and faithfulness in the midst of hostility, even threats of death and execution, it is a clear sign to those who are putting together, putting us to death, that they're losing, we win, God is faithful, he's in control. There's an added proof that comes, the second thing, and that's to the believer. I love the story from Martyr's Mirror, and and I would encourage you, don't read Martyr's Mirror at night before you go to bed. But I love the, two, the story of the two men who were to be burned at the stake. And the one was, began to just waver a bit and began to say, Will God's favor, grace be enough? When the flames rise, will it be enough? And the, the one man said, I don't know if there'll be enough, but I'll tell you. If God's grace is enough, when the Rome ropes burn off, if there is enough strength in my arm, I'll raise my hand and you will know. God's grace is sufficient. Witnesses to that execution say that amidst the flames and the smoke when the ropes burned out, two charred hands were raised to heaven for a moment. God's grace is sufficient. Can you see how grace rises and and faith rises in our hearts as we experience the faithfulness of God, the sufficiency of God in the midst of those kinds of trials? Christian confidence in the face of persecution really does produce fear in the persecutor's heart while it builds assurance in the hearts of suffering believers. And then Paul says, make my joy complete. I love that in the book of Philippians, at least five times there is a reference to joy. He says in chapter 2, verse 2, make my joys complete. First of all, it's this call to unity. And here is this appeal. Is there any encouragement of Christ? Well, of course there is, because Christ's in us, Christ's in me, Christ's in you. He is with us. There's encouragement. If there's any consolation in love, does love motivate us? Yes. Bible says we love him because he first loved us. Our Christian walk is a response to his love that has been poured out upon us. Is there any fellowship of the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. Because his spirit is in you, it's in me, it's working in us. Just be patient. God's not finished with me yet. I'm changing. He's working his work in me so that I am being molded into the image of Christ. So are you. This work of grace by the Holy Spirit in each of us binds us together. Is there any affection or compassion? Our hearts break as we see brothers and sisters suffer, as we see people lay down their lives for the gospel. And then he says, cultivate humility. Verse 3, verse 4. Need to understand that in that pagan society, and I would dare say in our society as well, humility is a vice, not a virtue. And yet, as brothers and sisters, as we 
we look to the needs and the feelings of others. It becomes such a powerful testimony in the world and in the culture in which we live. I remember when I was a boy in Sunday school, one of the things that did stick was the word joy. This morning we sang, joy to the world, the Lord has come. And I love what my teacher did, joy, J-O-Y. Do you want to have joy in your life? Say amen. Jesus, others, and you. J-O-Y. When we put things in that order, God is able to fill our hearts with his joy and the joy of his presence. And then Paul gives this glorious example of Jesus. Little shameless commercial because we need to get rid of them. Back on the table in the back is a copy of a little book that I wrote years ago in the last century called Let This Mind Be In You where we look at this more completely. I don't think Paul, in these verses in chapter 2 and beginning in verse 5, was trying to just lay out a great Christology. What I believe he was doing was trying to simply express the humility of Christ. And look at what he says, verse 5. Have this attitude in yourself, who though I'll... Let me start over. I'm trying to hurry because I know it's Christmas and we're not going to keep you here all morning. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. What did it mean for him to empty himself? When we look at his call, take up your cross and follow me, what does that mean? I have to discover what it meant to empty himself. Let me give you some things that I believe that it meant. Number one, I believe in the emptying of himself, he laid aside his position of equality with God the Father as the second person of the Godhead. John chapter 14, verse 28, Jesus said, You've heard me say to you, I'm going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I'm going to my Father, for my Father is greater than me. Now here is Jesus who existed, who coexisted with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, three in one, eternally active. And we see them in Genesis chapter 1 at the very creation of the world. And yet, he willingly empties himself. May I say to us, when he stepped aside and laid aside his divinity and put on humanity, he did not overcome sin by his divinity, but by his spirit-filled humanity. He gave up his independence. Have it up on the screen for you, or it was up on the screen and miraculously disappeared. You need to go back about two screens. So in John chapter 5 and verse 30, he said, I do nothing of my own initiative. He gave up his, his will. We see him agonizing in the garden. Father, if you're willing, let this cup pass from me. 
yet not my will, but thine be done. John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus said, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Oh, brothers and sisters, think about how strong our will is, the will of our fallen nature. And if you don't want to acknowledge how strong your fallen nature is, just look at your kids and your grandkids. Their strong will. And yet Jesus lays all of this aside. And then Paul says, he humbled himself. Now growing up as I did, was constantly being told, be humble, be humble, be humble. The problem is, how do you get humble, know you're humble, and stay humble? Because the minute you get humble and know you're humble, it's like, glory to God. Don't you wish you were all as humble as I am? We began to define humility as putting ourselves down, and yet in reality... It was pride that was, was coming up because somebody would ask you to do something and you say, no, uh, that's okay. Uh, somebody else can do it better. What we really wanted was, come on, beg me a little bit here. If God has gifted me to do something and I, ask, I expect people to beg me to do it, that reflects pride in my heart. What did it mean to humble himself? I think back in Deuteronomy chapter 8, where Moses in, in this final, actually four sermons before he dies, says, you shall remember how the Lord your God led you in the wilderness, and he humbled you, made you to know that man doesn't live by bread alone. May I say to us that we have defined humility all wrong? Humility really is dependency. For Jesus, he walked in relationship with his Father. I love Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Back in the days of the charismatic renewal, we used to sing this. He has shown thee, O man, what is good. What doth the Lord require of thee? But to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. In humility, Jesus walks in relationship with the Father. I take you back to John 5, verse 30 that we referenced earlier, where he said, I do nothing of my own initiative. As I hear, so I speak. Everything was born out of relationship. To walk in relationship with the Father and to make the Father successful and his plans successful on the earth which also meant that humility meant walking in obedience to the Father. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. This is, this is a verse that, that I continue to think about so often. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. How does God the Son, second person of the Trinity, need to learn obedience? We spend the next week talking about that. The key is in Romans 5, 19, where Paul says, as by one man's disobedience, that's Adam, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
many shall be made righteous. He understood, and, and we could make a case that when Jesus begins his earthly ministry, he understands from the outset why he is on the earth and the Father's eternal purposes. I love John chapter 2, the wedding of Cain in Galilee. It's a private miracle that has a public implication. The only people that knew a miracle took place were the disciples, the servants, and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Nobody else knew it. And Jesus manifests his glory there. And I just have to stop because you can tell I love that passage of Scripture. Jesus empties himself. He humbles himself. He walks in relationship. Have you noticed how difficult that is for us as Americans? Oh, we love life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and nobody's going to tell me what to do. I cannot tell you how many times I thought as a teenager, I can't wait till I'm 21. Today you're thinking 18. But in my day I was 21. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. The reality is, kids, somebody will always be telling you what to do. Because Jesus empties himself, because he humbles himself, and walks in relationship with the Father to the point of laying down his life. Paul says, God has done this glorious thing and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, verse 10, every knee will bow of those in heaven and those under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'll tell you, I used to think God was going to have to break a lot of legs to get people to, to fall on their face. But I'm convinced that when the light of his glory is revealed, even sinners will fall on their knees declaring he is Lord. I can't give you chapter and verse for that, but I believe that. May I say to us that one of the keys to understanding the New Testament, especially the book of Acts, is to understand the high regard that believers had for the name of Jesus and for the use of his name. Where did Jesus get his name? The Father gave it to him. Isn't it interesting, as we're celebrating Christmas today, and we all know Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. We're just celebrating that today, and that's a good thing to celebrate. But the angel says to Mary, the angel says to Joseph, you'll call his name Jesus. It was God who named him. Because it is God who gave him his name, everything that God is, his person, his eternal throne, his power, his very existence stands behind the name of Jesus. How dare we pray and end our prayer and glibly say, in Jesus' name, amen. And yet, how often is it for us as believers that we close a prayer and when we say, in Jesus' name, amen, it's little more than signing a letter, yours truly. 
It's an indication that we don't understand what's in the name of Jesus. Who is in the name of Jesus and stands behind the name of Jesus? I believe the early church, those first century believers, really understood that clearly. Because you see, to pray in the name of Jesus, Jesus said, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. When we pray in Jesus' name, we are exercising, I believe, spiritual power of, etern- of, of attorney in the heavenlies. And if you've never had power of attorney, that may not mean a whole lot to you. I remember when my father had a stroke, I had to take care of all of his business. And we drew up papers, and I got legal power of attorney. By the way, power of attorney ends at death. But Jesus is alive. Okay, you'll get that Thursday. I had power of attorney for my father. You know what that meant? I could spend his money, and I did. I could have sold his house. I could have sold his car. I could have done whatever I wanted with his possessions because I had the, spirit, the legal power of attorney. But you see, I loved my father. I also feared my father because he used to be a very good boxer. That story for another day about the Amish boys who used to get together and box in Topeka and Emma Town. And ask me later, I'll tell you the stories. My father never raised a hand to me. I both loved and feared my dad. And so I was careful. Now, I don't believe that we have a spiritual blank check that we can name it and claim it, or as some people would say, blab it and grab it. But may I say to us that what happens to us, we're so afraid of the extremes that came about through the prosperity teaching that we virtually threw the baby out with the bathwater and we don't understand the awesome, glorious power and privilege of praying in the name of Jesus and putting his name to that prayer before God the Father. I believe this is a real key. When we pray in the name of Jesus, we must not only pray in the authority of that name, but in the nature of the one who bears it. God, make me like Jesus. Because the more I look at myself, the the more evil I see within me. I need to bring this together. There's so much more in this. Paul moves then in verses 12 through 18 with the practical aspects. Work out your own salvation. So then, verse 12 says, the example of Jesus calls us to a devoted life of discipleship. I love verse 13. For it is God who works in you, 
both to will and to do his good pleasure. I remember as a teenager, and some of you have heard me say this before, but, but it, it was, it's so true and it was so real in my life. I cannot tell you how many times, you know, I saw God's standard for my life. And try as I will, I'd only get up to about here. And I'd pray, God, if you just give me a little more grace, if you'll just help me, I'll get up here. I prayed that prayer countless times, and God never once answered that prayer. Frustrated me to no end. But you know why he didn't answer that prayer? Because if he would have, it would have been 75% me and 25% him. It's 100% him. It's God. His divine grace that deals with both my will and my actions. If God doesn't call my name and call me to salvation, there is no salvation. If God's Spirit doesn't work within us, there is no desire within us to do the things that please Him. If God's Spirit doesn't work in us and through us, there's no power to be able to walk that out. Paul says this whole process, you're to do it without grumbling and disputing. There's so much more in that. Blameless, innocent, verse 15, children above reproach among whom you appear as luminaries, which is an interesting word in the Greek, luminaries in the world. Any of you know what luminaries are? When I was in Mennonite Voluntary Service in Albuquerque, New Mexico, I was down there over Christmas. And then years later, Janice and I were down there over Christmas with Youth for Christ. They have this wonderful tradition of luminaries. Well, to take a small sack, put sand in the bottom, and then put a candle in it and light the candle, and they will light their sidewalks. They will uh, line their, their yards, their sidewalks, even their rooftops with these luminaries. I thought, man, how much time did it take for them to go up and light each candle and then blow each candle out? It'd just been really great if you'd have hooked up electric light and you just flipped the switch, but then that destroys the illustration. Luminaries, beacons shining brightly in the midst of a darkened world. Paul says, the sense here is, you're radiating the word of life. Dispelling the spiritual darkness in the midst of all the perversity and the crookedness in which we live. Boy, if there was ever a time... When that needed to happen with you and me in the midst of the perversion and the darkness of the United States, it's now where we shine brightly. I remember the Sunday school song, This Little Light of Mine, I'm Gonna Let It Shine. We need to be letting our light shine, church, not being offensive. Not in the face of people, but letting the light of Christ that is within us just 
naturally flow out of our lives. Finally, Paul says, verse 17 and 18, we bring this together. Share my joy. It's really a second admonition here to rejoice. And Paul says, if I can put it in my own words, if their faith finds an expression in Christ-like sacrifice and service, then Paul's going to be able to say, my labor among you wasn't in vain. Because I see it borne out. You saw the example of Jesus, you see the example of me, and you're living that out. It means we have not failed God's eternal purposes. Let's make this practical. For better or worse, you and I are representing to a watching world what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You can't avoid that. For better or for worse, the world's going to look at you and say, that's how a Christian lives. I don't know what you, that does for you, but that's a very sobering thing to me. And I think of the words of Jesus, where he says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16, he said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, which we know, Philippians 2.13, that it's God who works in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. They may see those good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Worship team, come and join me. Today we rejoice as we celebrate Christmas. As families gather, as presents are shared, and there's laughter and joy. And yet the real challenge is, Am I following the example of Jesus Christ? Am I demonstrating what it means to be his disciple? We sing joy to the world, the Lord is come. But is his coming being seen in my life and through my life? I want to encourage you as families to get together. Read the Christmas story from Luke chapter 2. And then talk about the humble birth of Christ. Talk about his humility in the light of Philippians 2.8. Talk about what it meant for Jesus to submit himself to the will of the Father by taking on humanity. Because we understand it's more, much more than just a baby in a manger. Read Micah chapter 6 together in verse 8. And talk about how that can apply to our lives today. Finally, pray. Ask the Holy Spirit to empower you to live out the example of Christ, first of all, in your family and before a watching world. Stand together and pray with me. Lord, we are rejoicing. We're celebrating Christmas, but we understand there's so much more that's involved. It's the baby in the manger. 
It's the cross. It's the empty tomb. It's your eternal plan of salvation. It's you, by your word and by your spirit, that is at work in us, both the will, the want to, and then to do your good pleasure. God, we're so aware that salvation is all about you. And the only thing that we have brought to salvation is our sin that necessitates the need of it. But God, you've given us your son. You've called us to yourself. You've forgiven our sins. God, may your spirit so arise within us and overflow from our lives that people around us see and notice that it's it's you and it's not us. May we represent you well before a watching world. Thank you for your forgiveness. Lord, I'm in need of it every single day. Thank you. We give you praise for who you are. Not just the baby in a manger, but the crucified, resurrected Lord, King of kings, who is coming again. Amen. As we do every Sunday, we want to come to the table of the Lord. We're so grateful for those of you who are visiting with us today. If you are a believer, we invite you to come and take of the elements with us. And we're going to begin as the worship team leads us and start from the front, take of the elements, return to your your place, and we'll take things together. If you're a believer, you're welcome to come. If you're not a Christian, we would invite you to stay where you are and just contemplate contemplate the baby in the manger, the Savior on the cross, and the risen, resurrected Lord who is coming again. Lead us. If you grab your bulletin, let's confess together from the Nicene Creed before we come to the table. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ. The only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made, for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. And on the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, 
the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, with the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He is spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Thanks for joining our podcast. We pray that God would bless you and strengthen you through his word. If you'd like to find out more about EWC or give tithes and offerings in support of this ministry, visit our website at edenworshipcenter.co.